Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, you can, of course, stream past shows directly from our website homepage or download the show by going to the iaqradio.com website. Follow the link that says go to show, and then you can download shows from the Talk Shoe site, or of course you can get them from iTunes. We also have ABIH, IICRC, and ACAC renewal credits. Email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. We'll get you out the quiz. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio tribute question. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IEQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IEQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Either email it to cslotnick at cs.com or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer via your computer. Congratulations. To John Lapotier for being the first person to identify the American Broadcasting Company as a spinoff from the National Broadcasting Company. The IEQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, June 21st, 2013, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Their website is www.trsca.org. Now for today's trivia question. What are the seven summits, and who coined the term and co-authored a book about completing the challenge? Back to you, Joe. Okay, thank you, Cliff. We're at the Violent Executive Summit. I had it wrong the first time, but it's all right. We've got four great guests here today. We're going to talk a little bit about the executive management of companies, uh, 
and, and just kind of doing a better job for yourself and personal development, I think, has been one of the things I've picked up here. Uh, it's been an interesting couple of days. We look forward to talking to our guest today. I want to start with, uh, let's let Cliff introduce our principal, Chuck Violin. Chuck Violin founded Violin Management Associates in 1988 with the objective of helping owners of restoration and cleaning companies build profitable businesses for their long-term business and personal success. He's a regular contributor of articles to several newsletters and trade publications on the subject of growing and managing small businesses. Okay, we also have Dr. Holly Bogner. She's the principal at Bogner Associates and a business development advisor with Violin Management Associates. She's been training, consulting, and coaching leadership, team building, organizational development, strategic planning, and she works with not-for-profits and public agencies for over 10 years now. Prior to that, she was at Cleveland State. Cleveland State, as a professor at Cleveland State, she also specializes in aligning the strategy with current curriculum design and delivery, including assessment, consultation, training, facilitation, intervention, and coaching. Jim Ryerson, our third guest, is founder of Sales Octane of Michigan. He's devoted to helping others apply time-honored sales, marketing, and customer service principles. Jim started his selling career with Herman Miller, Inc., where he developed several selling models. Jim holds a bachelor's degree in business administration from Davenport University and is an active member in the World Entrepreneurs Organization and the Edison Creativity Council, where he trains on innovation and creativity. And last but not least, we've got Stephanie Beatty. We want to even things out a little here. A couple, a couple guys in here. I get a couple complaints from time to time. We don't have enough women. We're happy to have two today. Anyway, she is one of only five women teaching IICRC courses. In fact, she's the only approved Canadian female instructor. She's got a big, strong contingent of Canadians here with her, and hopefully she'll be able to stay for the show because, unfortunately, we've had a big flooding going on in Alberta, and uh, hopefully uh, everybody will be uh, okay up there. But her, her team will be responding to that immediately following the show here. It's not, they're probably on there right now. She's also been very busy with the IICRC and development of standards like the S500 professional water damage standard and the mold remediation standards. She's an approved instructor in numerous categories. All right, let's get started. First, I want to get Chuck's views on, uh, Chuck, what, what, I mean, it's like eight years now, did you say? It's our ninth year. Ninth year. Yep. And this is the biggest one. You've got about okay. 100 people. We've got about 113. Fascinating. And we've had a great time, and, and it's been interesting. And, and what I've, I've picked up is you seem to do a lot of, at least in the sessions I went to, kind of uh, introspection. You want people to look at what they do, how they do it, how they affect their company. Can you, can you kind of expand on that a little bit? Happy to, Joe. First of all, I'd like to thank you and Cliff for being here. It's really a thrill to have you guys. been great hosts, and thank you a great time. Uh, we've enjoyed it. Um, Joe, if you look at a business as three basic dynamics that cause businesses to succeed. One of them is the business dynamic. That's the physical, uh, the technical things that take place. It's understanding the market, understanding the, uh, the technical side of the business. But there are two other dynamics that take place, too. One of them is the people end of the business and the development end of the business, personnel. And then the other one is the executive, the one generally who starts the company or who runs it, and that's the executive development side of the business. So you have all three. And if you picture a Venn diagram and you have those three circles intersecting, the idea is to have balance with the three circles. If I try to fix a business problem or grow a business by only focusing on the business circle, it's only going to go so far. Because those, the, the drive of the company is really being influenced by the other two. So as I work on all three circles, it allows the business to grow much more profitably. I looked at my own business after, you know, obviously sitting in the class, and I'm thinking, okay, which one of the three circles is uh, a problem for me? And uh, it's interesting to look at it that way. The, like, for instance, one of the examples was business development. You, you know, a lot of people focus on business. We want more business development. We want more cash flow coming in. But if you don't have the executive development to handle that cash flow or the people and personnel to do the work, you're better off without it at all. Is that? Yeah, okay. absolutely. And you're only going to grow to your own level. Well, it's, it's been an eye-opening thing for me. 
me, and I know Cliff had a couple, uh, maybe some personal thoughts before we start, or you want to just go right into a question? No, I think I, I think we're we only have a limited amount of time. We have four guests. Let's kind of jump right into it. Um, I, th I think what's important about this interview is I think there's a big difference between what you do, how you do it, and how it's done in college. And I, I really have a lot of concerns about kids going to business school. And, you know, I've had the opportunity, unfortunately, through business to deal with a bunch of MBAs who really don't know a whole lot about business. I mean, they've never built a business. They've never run a business. They can come in, they can crunch the numbers, and they try to apply concepts that came out of a textbook somewhere uh, into a company, and they have a tendency not to work. And that's why I think what you do is really admirable, and that this program is, you know, results oriented and people here for a limited amount of time, and it's like trying to drink from a fire hose. And, you know, I, I think that that's great. So what I'd like to do is, what is the difference between going to business school versus getting schooled in business? And, somebody starts their own business, they believe that they're the only ones that run into the problems that they run into. And you can't go to a textbook in most cases to find the answer. And so one of the, one of the struggles is that an entrepreneur doesn't have anyone that they can talk to about their problems. You can't bring your problems up to your employees because the employees may be part of the problem. <laughs> so the issue is who do you talk to and who do you align yourself with um, and really, it's beneficial to align yourself with other entrepreneurs in a similar business situation so that you can start to share some of the best practices, some of the things you're learning, some of the struggles, because you tend to feel like you're the only one that has that problem, and there's no place to go, there's no book, there's no college that can give you the answer. So working and, and leveraging the relationships is, is just huge with this type of group. Anyone else like to add anything? I want to add a quick point. Jim brings up getting together with similar people. I was in a session with Chuck earlier this morning, and there were actually two guys in the same session. Both have disaster restoration companies in the Toronto area, yet they were you know, sharing with each other, and they, they compete, but they recognize that if they both do a good job and they both kind of bring up the level of everybody else, Everybody benefits. I was that was very interesting for me to see. I don't know if Chuck, if you wanted to add anything to that. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that you're right on the money, and those guys were sharing. And there is an awful lot of that that goes on. Back to Cliff's question, I think a big part of the difference between going to school and, and learning in an environment like this is that it's practical application. In school, I might be studying theory. Here, I can apply the theory to my business or to what's going on around me. You know, and I think in the seminars that I was in, uh, one yesterday and then one today, uh, both of the instructors uh, told us within the first, I mean, after introducing themselves, uh, told us that the purpose of what they were doing was to give us information that we could take home and implement tomorrow. You know, so it's not like you're learning to write a research paper or you're learning about you know, and you know, you hear that story about Smith and, and Federal Express, and uh, yeah. <laughs> what do you get a C minus or whatever? Yeah. You know, on, on the project or whatever. <laughs> you kind of wonder, you know, who graded the project? <laughs> what did he do? But, yeah. I, oh, I, yeah. I think one of the things that we get from formal training in an academic environment is the ability to learn how to learn, learn how to take ideas apart and then synthesize them back together. So the analysis and synthesis part is what then allows you to take what you have done in your business and pull it apart, put new things in, try different things. So I think that the learning is what we take into the workplace as much as the theory. Because business theories are always perfect. You know, they always work out. And then you go out in your job and it's like none, none of that works. And it's very frustrating. You think, well, that's not how the book said it was going to work. But that, you know, that's the theory of it. There's always going to be some kind of a, a difference in what happens when you look at 
the reality of it all. But once you're able to take the ideas apart and reconfigure them, then you have the skill to see what's going on in your own business, analyze, and then reconfigure that. So I think it's the learning of learning that is, is as much of, of a benefit as just the theories in the books. I think fear of change is um, something that many entrepreneurs suffer. I think one of the unique characteristics of these particular classes is someone may be fearful of implementing uh, a strategy or a technique or something they've learned. And when they look around the room, if the instructor raises, how many people have done that? And all of a sudden, they see several people say that they have done it and done it successfully, and then they're excited and engaged about it. I think it then gives them the courage to you know, implement that technique. It does. And, and being with people of like mind is very energizing. Yeah. You learn a lot, but you also get you recharge when you're with people that do the same kinds of things that you do. So as much as it's a gift to yourself to come to something like this, the learning is incredibly important, but you also refuel by the networking that you have with a group of people. This is an amazing group of people. Speaking of like-minded, Stephanie, and am I saying Beatty is also with us, and she's a trainer, and I do training, and I know Cliff's done training, and she's in the disaster restoration world, and, and one of the first things I noticed here was the contingent of women. It was just unbelievable. At a disaster restoration, cleaning type uh, conference tour or summit, I've never seen this many women, and I think you brought half of them. I'm not sure. I know you brought <laughs> a ton of people from Canada. Can you just kind of fill us in on what your group does in Canada and why you brought all these people along with you? Well, thank you for that. Um, I'm actually uh, on, on two sides here. So one is, my biggest advantage on the training and certification side was I've been fortunate to maintain independence. And with that, I am not owned or operated by a restoration business. I don't work or own any manufacturing. I'm not a distributor. So my core um, business at the time was on the training and consulting. From there, what we've realized in the last three years was the vision was bigger, and my responsibility beyond the school was to create a trade association base where the contractors could be held accountable to the standards in which they were being trained. Um, so with that, I'm able to run something that has been um, very progressive for them, where they have um, a bar that has been raised where my responsibility is to keep them at that level. And I'm curious, why so many women in Canada doing disaster restoration cleaning? I don't know, any idea? I, I believe it's been a combination of a few things. One is I believe they've always been around. They just didn't have a voice or um, a place where they felt safe in that environment. Uh, okay. So with the changes coming around, they've got exceptional attention to detail, and they've really been able to come on board and really um, shine through specific skill sets that they were able to bring to the table. So we're looking at a couple of other things where, you know, it's right if it works, and we had a lot of opportunity through the Violin Summit, which I've been coming to for several years, um, to really engage them to the next level to get them to up with their philosophies and their integrity that they were working forward with. Are these are they from all over Canada, or just is it more Toronto area based? I'm just curious. Uh, most of the um, attendees that um, came um, through some of the work that I've done here to Violin were specific to Ontario. And um, we are looking at a national presence in the next two years. Nice. Yeah, um, I'd like to throw this question out. What are the differences between studying business and studying entrepreneurship? That's a Chuck question. Chuck? <laughs> that is a great question. Uh, Probably there are some, some factors that come into it. When I'm studying business, I'm going to go back to Holly's comment. A lot of times you're studying theory, and it's the perfect theory, and it all works out. When you're studying entrepreneurship, we're talking about a human being and characteristics that entrepreneurs bring to their businesses. And after 25 years of working with small business owners, entrepreneurs, you start to notice different patterns of behaviors that we bring. Some of them were very good and allowed us to launch our businesses. At the same time, those strengths that allowed us to launch our business can sometimes get in the way as we continue to grow those businesses. We have to recognize them, and we have to address them, because they're not going to go away. So we have to address them and build the organization around those. 
capitalize on the strengths, and help mitigate the weaknesses. I have a formula for that. The, what we talked about at the beginning, essentially, yep. dividing into, has it always been that way, or is that somewhat a newer concept you brought, or is it just re redesigned? Redesigned, the, the diagram is new. Okay. Uh, the concept has been there, that was why we did the diagram, the concept has been there ever since I've been working with which is, didn't realize it was the Venn diagram. So. Where, of these three areas, you've got the business dynamic, the executive development dynamic, the people dynamic, the personnel dynamic. Which do you most commonly see lacking in, let's put it that way, business owners lacking in? I'm going to say the two, the executive development and the people development are the two. Um, there's an awful lot of training and brilliant minds in the industry as far as the business, the technical end goes. And that's great. And that's, and that's really neat with the restoration industry. But what we see is a lacking in terms of the people development and the executive development. We know that as we grow those, the business side's gonna increase. Yesterday in one of my classes, someone said, this is, we were talking about people and understanding and growing yourself and managing your own leadership and then also developing your people. And one of the comments from a participant was, this is the hard stuff. This is why I keep going back to my Excel spreadsheets and my numbers and my plans, because that's easy. Dealing with all this, like looking at myself and managing my people is messy and it's hard, and that's why we keep sliding over into the business side, because it's easier and it's not as difficult and not as messy. Jim, anything you could add to that? Yeah, there's another level of frustration with you between entrepreneurs versus business. The entrepreneur probably started the business on their own probably did the actual uh, disaster restoration themselves. Maybe they had a couple of people working for them, but they were the primary salesperson. They were the one that set the business up. They're the ones that go out and meet with clients. And what happens is as they start to grow the business, inevitably they start to bring on some talent to replicate the sales part of their process. And typically that doesn't go very well because the entrepreneur started the business. They know everything about the business. They have learned by the school of hard knocks what to do and what not to do, and they never document anything. So then when they hire someone, they expect this person to come up to speed fast, and it's like a, the deer in the headlight look. You know, it's like, okay, where do I go first? And there's a lot of discussion around, well, just do this, or I did that. But this person now has to go out there and try to figure it out. But it's not their business. They didn't have four or five years of experience doing it, and as a result, oftentimes these entrepreneurs end up running through a series of salespeople, and they can't find anyone to do what they were able to do. So one of the things that you know Beonlin does at the at the conference is kind of map out what have been the best practices from a bunch of entrepreneurs who have successfully sold in this environment, and then bottle those best practices so that you can then give your salesperson a head start, and in coaching them through those first, you know four or five months of, of uh, starting in sales. So that's another issue between entrepreneurship and business. And Jim has been a big part of that. Okay. All right. I, I'm, you have all these people that are very good at selling or at doing, going out and doing the work, and, and they have a real hard time letting go. I mean, it's it's really tough. How do you how do you get them to understand? Well, how do you get them to let go? You know, to, I had a guy in class today. He cleans carpet. And it's like, he cleans carpet very well, but he's like, I can't find anybody I trust to go out and do it as well as me. How do we get him more comfortable? Anybody want to add back uh, yeah. that one? Oh, boy. That's, that's a difficult thing. It, it, you, you want the person to, to have the freedom to do that, so you have to let them have enough rope to fail and learn by doing, but you don't want them to go so far that they hang themselves. And it's a, it's, it's, real, it's a lot like teaching your kids how to ride a bike. You know, you start out with a tricycle, and then you get to the training wheels, and then you take the wheels off, and you let them go on a two-wheeler. But that doesn't mean you're not standing behind kind of keeping an eye out. So it, it's about developing your people, and you have to trust them. And that's why we always, you know, Chuck teaches it, and all of us talk about take your time when you're hiring. Really know who's coming on board. Don't just take someone because you're desperate, and then be sorry afterwards. Because if you have someone you can trust, that fits in with your culture, you can teach the technical stuff. It's, it's more difficult to teach them how to fit in. 
and how we how we work and what our culture is. So if you can find someone that can live the values that you espouse that are important to you, I can teach you to train the carpet well. I mean, teach you to I can train you to clean well. Okay. I can't train you to be trustworthy. That's a little bit different. Yeah. yeah. You you mentioned another thing that struck me. It was um, hire slowly, fire quick, and I. I Wonder if someone could expand on that a little bit. I, you, you just did, Holly, but Chuck, maybe you can. You know, I thought that was a solid piece of advice that anybody listening to this show could take and make use of fairly quickly. But I just didn't want to leave it at just that. I want to kind of add to it a little bit, Chuck. I think a lot of times what we do, Joe, is we panic hire. Uh, typically, as entrepreneurs, I'm being broad with that, but typically as entrepreneurs, we wait to the very last minute to hire somebody. And we hire them quickly because we're in pain. I need a body here doing this. So we bring anybody on that looks good, that smells good, and that, and that speaks reasonably articulate. And so we bring them on board. And then, and then we, we keep them. We feel a loyalty to them when they're on board, even when they're not performing. We just kind of accumulate people around us. Whereas if we took the time ahead of time to figure out what's the skill set that I really need, and it isn't the skill set we have, which is, also what we hire. We hire looking in the mirror. We want to hire people like us. Wrong. We don't want to hire people like us. But we need to take the time to recognize the right hires, evaluate them, then bring them on, and as Jim was saying, then train them properly. And if they're not working out, we have to have the strength and the confidence to cut bait and move on to somebody else. And I don't mean to do it casually, but to pull that trigger sooner rather than later. You know, it, it, it's interesting. Um, over the course of my business career, I've used uh, various consulting companies. Some extremely successful, some in the middle, and some bad. And, you know, one of the interesting things is uh, a question that um, I want to throw out there that now I'm working with now to in the business uh, said to me, he said, you know, we should not hire consultants on what they've done. Hire them on what they're going to do for me. What are some of the things that Violin Management does for its clients? I guess sometimes they call you in there deep due to not figuratively, but literally as, as well. You know, they're very, very busy and they can't handle it, or you know, a partnership breaks up, and you kind of need to deal with it. So, what sorts of things do you do for the group? But probably the the thing that might explain it best is that we, when we work with a client, we work from the inside out. Typically, when a client comes to us, they're in pain, like you're saying, and they're thinking that the, the pain is centered on the business circle, because that's where it's showing up. That's where all issues in business show up. But that's not the source. That's not the cause of the pain. So through conversations with them and interaction with them, we're able to get to the source of the pain, which is typically the entrepreneur. And so when they gain the confidence to share it and to open up, to become vulnerable, um, okay, now all of a sudden we can start to see changes in the business. They grow. As their people grow, then we're able to put things in place in their business. If you do it the other way around, where you go when you just start putting things in place in the business, and you haven't changed anything with the people or the owner, it isn't going to last long. It's going to go away. And unfortunately, a lot of times when you revisit the problem, it's bigger and uglier, and so we try to get to the source right off the bat. Now, let's go to halftime. Thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. 
visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanclenfax.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, we're back for the second half of our interview here. We're at the Violand Executive Summit in Canton, Ohio. And we want to get back with Stephanie B. before she has to go because we've got a lot of people that need your help out there. So one more question for Stephanie, and then she's got to run. Yes, Stephanie, as a unique person who does both technical training and business training, which have you seen have the greater impact on customers' business and more? Wow. Um, I actually think it's a combination of both. And I say this uh, primarily because the business itself needs to be set up, the vision and purpose needs to be established so that when you're hiring and getting people involved to execute on that, everybody is aware of what the business stands for. Uh, beyond that, we have the planning stages and then we do need the technicians and the assistants, obviously, to execute on that. And uh, in my belief, we are always looking at how are we aligned with that. And I think, again, through a combination of the right support, businesses can execute on those things. Um, it, it, it's not just a one-sided piece anymore where the technicians are the only part of the business that has to matter. Um, it does have to have a well-rounded plan that can be executed on an ongoing basis to fill the needs of the business and obviously serve the customers that it's meant for. Stephanie, I'm, I'm curious, when you go to help organize this disaster response, what's your role? My role primarily is to manage with the vendor. So the insurer or someone that's looking for me for an opinion or expertise on the execution um, to ensure that the standard of care is being followed. Um, it, you know, are these contractors in line with and are they able to execute according to the standard and maintain their integrity throughout the process? And the big issue that we seem to have is um, there's a, a plan in place but not enough planning to provide and execute the commitments that they've put forward. So what I do is ensure that it's happening all the time, not just sometimes. So there's a plan in place by the owner or by the responders who are coming in? Great question. Almost always the responders do have a plan in their catastrophe um, situations, and now we just have to ensure that that meets the criteria for the insurer partners in order to execute according to the standard. So you're kind of acting as a consultant for the responders, the people going in doing the disaster restoration, but you're also at the same time acting as a, uh, a consultant essentially for the people who have the problem. Yes. You're, you're yes. Kind of making sure the, the response matches the need essentially. Yes, exactly. And the insurance companies would, would usually contact me for opinion, uh, site evaluation, monitoring, uh, file auditing, where they really want to ensure that the integrity is being upheld and the customer is being served. Do you see that becoming more common in your area? I mean, it doesn't. I don't know that that's something that happens a lot here in the states. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Cliff, you know better than me. Um, do you see that becoming more common? It is becoming more common. Uh, the insurer expectations are becoming a lot stricter, a lot tighter. Um, they're making decisions based on uh, the mitigation side versus the reconstruction side. And what we really want to ensure is that the competence and the expectation of the contractor are maintained on a consistent basis. How do you 
suggest contractors who are looking at the future prepare themselves for dealing with folks like you? Um, I really believe they need to have an idea of what it is that they're looking for. And primarily, it's, it's kind of broken into three areas. Each business has a visionary who takes on the risk, typically the owner. You have the talent, who's the artist, who's the creative. And then you have the manager who's expected to execute on the vision. And I believe that on the ownership level, and even working through the Violin group was, you know, we all default to one of those things. So when something, and Holly had stated this earlier, when something gets uncomfortable, they'll default back to what they're most comfortable with. So my expectation is that they're going to be retaining the right consultant that fits with what, with what they're looking for, but it's also not a yes ma'am, yes sir, because they're asking us to look at their business to refresh that advice. Thanks. We, we appreciate you joining us. I know you're busy. So thank you for having me. Run. Is, there, is there anything you wanted to add before you go? Just to be no, honest. thank you. Just a great opportunity for the summit, um, and uh, we've been a um, great supporter of the Violin Summit for several years, and we really encourage all of you to have a look at it and see if uh, it can offer you something different and unique to assist your businesses. Great. Thanks for joining us, and hopefully we'll get you back sometime. I was wondering before, uh, while Stephanie steps on, is there anybody that wanted to add what she, what she just said there just don't be able to articulate it very well. All right. And she does. <laughs> Cliff, it just seems that, and I, I don't understand why this happened, but it just seems that people in the cleaning and restoration business are hungry for knowledge when it comes to procedures and this technique and this piece of equipment, and they'll spend huge amounts of money to buy you know, large trailer-mounted you know, pieces of equipment, and that they really don't seem to spend you know, the time and effort and money on executive development and personal development. I just wonder why. It's a great question, Cliff. But I think it goes back to what Holly was saying before. You know, it, we default to the things that we're familiar with and that we're comfortable with, and dealing with people issues. Especially when you figure family issues, because many of the, I'll even venture to say most of the companies in the restoration and cleaning industry are family, consider family businesses. They're difficult conversations. And when it means that we've got to look in a mirror and really challenge ourselves, that's very difficult to do. But it's crucial if you're serious about growing a business. You know, I had an interesting conversation yesterday with uh, perhaps one of the same people that you were in the room with, Joe, and this contractor was from Toronto, and uh, he happened to be sitting next to me in my group, and I had no idea how large you know, the business was, and it just happened to have come out in conversation that he's running a $9 million a year business. Here's someone that's coming here and learning how to improve that business, and most likely you helped him get to that business level, and he's not running around with an MBA like after his name. And I just, you know, I'm just like really frustrated. I think personally by business education, uh, United States. I mean, it's so expensive to send these kids to school, and they come out and they can't, <laughs> and and they're not trained to do anything, and they're not experienced. I saw that a lot when I was teaching, and that's why I like being in the business arena and the adult learning arena, because you take all the ideas and you apply them. And when I was teaching in an academic setting, it was a lot of project work. You know, at the, at the freshman level, they're reading, you're trying to ask them to write short papers and start thinking and putting ideas together. By the time you're at a higher level class or in a graduate program, a lot of the work I did was team projects, which of course students don't like to do because somebody always is a free writer. But there's ways to handle all that. But, but that's what you do. You, take, you have to teach with some sense of application. If it doesn't make any sense and I don't know how I'm going to use this, I'm probably not going to come to class. And it is a, a very expensive thing to do. But I think if teachers could incorporate more adult learning into the classroom setting, I, I think we could remedy that. And that was one of my frustrations about academe and one of the reasons that I chose to walk away from that. After going to school for 10 years, I burned out at four. And it was for that very reason. I think that we do need to get our hands on things and learn. It has to make sense. 
I have to be able to put it into my mental framework and, and chew on it in a way that makes sense to me based on the world I see myself in. And if you're not able to make that link, you're going to stand in that ivory tower with those ideas not ever coming to fruition. So personally for me, it's about getting out of that and connecting it. And so many of my students couldn't do it, but I think the role of any good educator, whether it's someone in Jim's class or someone in one of Chuck's classes or even in any of mine, is to help people make that jump, to help them see the path between the idea and using it. And if we can facilitate that, we're good. Because most people, once they get to jump, they can, make the, they can make the leap. We have to help them see what direction to jump. Linking, it's not that hard. But it's done by in-class application learning and projects. It's not done by reading a book and taking a test. There's no way that's going to work. I know, Jim, you've got to leave. So I want to make sure I get a last chance to ask you a question. Uh, first, is there anything anybody wanted to add with what Holly said? No, it's great. Jim, you could give our listeners one piece of advice with respect to maybe your your sales kind of and marketing area. What what would you kind of sum it all down to and, and give our listeners a good piece of advice that they could take home and work with? Um, it's a good question. Everybody's looking for the silver bullet yep. uh, in selling, and uh, there is no silver bullet. It's, it's, and you're going to need a lot of bullets, a lot of different things. And what we recommend is that people start small with just kind of documenting their sales process, like figure out what are the steps in the sales process, then engage with some other people that have done it before and identify some best practices. And then the key step is you've got to document this, you have to write it down, and you have to practice. And too often uh, we are practicing on our customer. That we try something on a customer, and then if it doesn't work, we say, well, that doesn't work. Maybe even read it in a book. Somebody who's tried it once and been successful with it. You go out, you try it yourself because you didn't practice, and it doesn't work, and that becomes the big issue. So we always tell people, you know, start slow, document what your process is, identify what you're going to do on that call, getting some influence from some other people that have done it successfully, and then practice, 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 then go out, things will go a lot better. So that's that's typically where we start. That's great. And it sounds like you use almost like a focus group approach where it's like, uh, who do I practice on? Let me just ask that. Right, right. And especially for, you know, like a small entrepreneur kind of organization, you may only have three, four people, but you need to do those role plays, do the coaching one-on-one, -on -one, just practicing, even with a small group. And very hard for people to do because they're very uh, concerned about making a mistake, but as we've shown so many times in, in uh, class setting, you're going you're gonna to make mistakes three or four, five, six, seven times before you start to get into the flow of it, and it really becomes a habit. And most salespeople never get there because they just practice one-off on a customer. It doesn't work. They feel bad. Their confidence goes down. Uh, leaders have to step up, tell, show their folks what to do, coach them on it, role play, practice, and then reward them and reinforce them as they start to get the technique down. And that's the way you really change people. You have them do it within their own group and then maybe expand on. Where would be the next place you would go? Maybe a family member or a uh, uh, yeah, friend? Yeah, we, we always say, especially now with videos, I mean, you can just you know, turn on your phone, uh -huh. turn on your iPad and videotape yourself, trying something and listen to it. Something as simple as leaving a message for somebody most folks, when they actually listen to their message, will find that they are where they talk too much, they said a lot of stuff that didn't make sense, the message was too long, and it's like, well, hold it now. Why don't you leave that message on your voicemail for yourself and listen to it, and then don't go into denial, fix the things that are wrong, practice that a few times, and once you got that down, boy, you're going to be a lot more confident the next time you have to leave a voicemail message. So start with yourself, just doing some videotaping. Uh, go to your to your manager, your boss, the leader. Somebody's got to coach them there, and get into a, a group with other salespeople that maybe are uh, in different geographies. They don't compete with you, perhaps. Just like a small, almost like a uh, like a coaching circle, if you will. Uh, and that's where you start to learn. Like, hey, I ran into this the other day. What do you? If anybody? Oh yeah, I have to, what do you do? Well, I did this. Capture that. Document it. Then go back and practice. So that's, that's what we recommend. Great. It's great stuff, Jim. All right.
Have a great day. Tim right. Ryerson, thanks for Thank joining you. us. Got to go back and teach some people uh, a little more how to how to sell sales octane. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. Let, let me turn it over to you. Well, I think the importance that Jim brought out is, and and I think Chuck brought it out earlier, and and I think people in in the industry know it, but they may not practice it, is that you're really not on an island alone unless you want to be there. I mean, there are trade associations, there are groups, there are conventions, there are meetings, there are events where you're going to meet other people and you're going to have the opportunity to interact, you know, with other people both in session and afterwards, you know, uh, you know in the bar, and that those relationships, you know, can change your life and can change your business because there you're going to find someone in another city who's not your competitor who you can share intimate information with about your business and it can affect change. Maybe you can get involved with your local business association or whatever. There's probably, there may be people in the same association that are in the same business, but there will be a lot of people that aren't. Anything you'd like to add, Holly? Well, I just think if you do get involved in those, like a local chamber of commerce or another group, just because they're not in your particular industry does not mean that some of what you can learn from them isn't transferable. So don't assume that by spending time with others that aren't in your industry actually can give you a good fresh eye of things that you wouldn't have seen. They'll bring up questions you might not have thought of. So while you want to stay within your industry, and we at Violand think that that's a great idea, it's also good to expand that that group out. Chuck, let me ask you a question. Part of what you emphasize is evaluating your own strengths and weaknesses and where some of your preconceived notions may have come from, like this morning on money, you know, the, the question you asked about what's your first memory of money in, within your family. And I was thinking about it, and, I, and it was my Uncle Fred. My Uncle Fred used to bring me a dollar, a silver dollar, every Christmas. And that was like, that made me think about it. Now, what effect has that had on me down the road? And, you know, other little things like that. I found that very interesting. I was wondering if you could expand on that a little bit. Yeah, uh, Holly likes to say that, uh, and she's right about this, you know, we are really just uh, little kids in grown-up clothes. <laughs> and really in our businesses, Joe, we live out uh, what we believe. Our businesses are just a reflection of who we are and what we believe and what we accept in our lives. And I know that sounds really metaphysical, but in, in a lot of ways that's what it is. So if we're talking about our money messages and how we manage money in our businesses, how much we accept into our businesses, it really goes back to the lessons we learned as kids and that we learned early in our business careers. Right or wrong, good or bad, it just is. And so if we're not having the numbers we want in our business, if we're not having the profits we want in our business, we need to go back and take a look at ourselves and see why. I made the comment in yesterday's opening presentation uh, that numbers and money follow. They do not lead. And so when we look at our businesses, if we want to improve the numbers, if we want to improve the profits in our businesses, we need to figure out what's going on. Those are simply a reflection. Money and profits are simply a reflection of all the decisions and all the actions that have taken place in our business up to that point. Change the decisions, the actions will change the numbers. And you can't change it unless you look at it Yes. see it, recognize what's there, and then... Where did it come from? Where did it come from? Yeah. And then you've got to look at uh, how do you support the change you're trying to make. In other words, do I, if I want to make this change, I, I want to get a salesperson, but I don't know that I can necessarily support them with the personnel side, and I don't know that I'm good at managing a salesperson, so then you have to kind of look at yourself a little more reflection, I guess. Correct. Absolutely. And, and one of those, you know, any one of those circles does not exist in a, on its own. They all interact with each other. And so I can't ignore the business side. I have to look at the business side. I've got to measure things. But, again, it's only measuring the things that are taking place in, other, in the other circles in the business. I wonder if either one of you have a kind of a tip or a technique for helping people be a little more self-reflective. It's not easy for people to do that. I, I don't know if, if there is a simple answer to that, but I have a hard time with it. 
and 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 it's something that's easy to do, but it's it's a simple thing to do, but not easy because it requires a little bit of a time commitment. But maybe starting a business or leadership journal where you sit and write maybe once or twice a week, pick, you know, sit at a computer or pick up some paper and sit down. And it's not a diary where, oh, today I went here and then I met with so-and-so. It's more of a conversation with yourself about here's some of the things I faced today. This is how I handled it. It went really well. Or this, I faced this with issue with an employee today or with a customer today, and this is what I did, and it blew up in my face. And I'm still trying to figure out what went wrong and why. And over a period of time, as you've done that, your, your self-reflection goes way up because you start paying attention to yourself. And what's really fascinating is if you go back in time and start reading after several months, hmm. you'll start to see themes come up. And those themes will point you in the direction of what you need to work on within yourself. Might also give you a little head start on what Jim Ryerson talked about earlier with respect to documenting what you yes. do, how you do it. Absolutely. Yes. Kill two birds with one stuff. Yeah, I worked with an organization years ago, and there was a guy there that has been doing a leadership journal for 30 years. He has them stacked all over his office, but it's a way that he processes all that out. And it's like you're having a conversation with someone, but it's actually yourself, and it's just a way to get all of that out, and it really helps you learn to pay attention and the more you pay attention the more you can catch yourself right in the moment when you're starting to make that same mistake or do that same thing well again it's like whoa here I am again hmm. so it really heightens your awareness because you're paying attention getting close do you want to, do you think we should go to the roundup cliff or since there's only four of us just well I, I kind of I have a question that um I think it's kind of a roundup question, but not okay. not necessarily. And the question is, based on what you did last year, how did you improve the event this year? And based on this year, how are you going to make it better next year? So which, wow. What did you do different and better this year than you did last year? And how are, you know, based on... Good question, Clay. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a couple things. Um one of the ones that we, what I've been noticing from year to year is the, I'll use caliber of courses that we're offering. This could be a reflection of the people who've been back to the summit over and over, or it could be a reflection of new people who are coming in recognizing the need for it. But I'm finding the caliber of courses uh, being elevated a bit. Um, and so that's when I, I see that continuing. As a matter of fact, the class that Holly did this year was emotional intelligence. And I knew that I, I felt that we needed to wait a couple of years until we had enough attendees who were really ready for it because it's highly self-reflective. And I mean, you've got to really be ready for it. And I can see that continuing as we move into the, into the coming years. So it, it's getting deeper and richer is what I'm finding. Yeah. You know, one of the interesting things that uh, Karen drove me back to, uh, to my hotel last night and I was asking her in the car and I said, you know, it's kind of nice the way that um, you had the heavy hors d'oeuvres, and, you know, it was like out in the hallway. And she said, yeah, you know, it's like uh, we told them that we wanted to do something different because previously, you know, it's like the typical convention room and, you know, the food's at one end and people really don't interact. And, you know, just seeing that, the interaction was great. You know, people kind of got in their little groups and they had to walk down the hall to get a drink or whatever, and I thought that it worked out really well, and I suspect that that's probably something that you'll do again. Oh, yeah. And the steel drum band was nice, too. Yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, you, you have a, a core set of courses that everybody takes, uh, eight, is that accurate? Yes. Okay, and that, you get you can get two a year, and then at the end of four years, you get, is it a diploma from uh, Kent State? A diploma in small business management from Kent State University and violin management. It's not a degree; it's a diploma. I see. Okay, that's but that, that that's I like that. And then um, you have electives, right? That are added, so you can get your eight core courses, and then you have electives. And well, I there's five core courses. Five. I'm sorry. Yes. Okay. So there's five core courses and three electives. One of the electives, as I understand it, was the emotional intelligence, Holly. Can you tell us what emotional intelligence is in Absolutely. a couple, three minutes maybe? Yes, All right, yes. great. Emotional intelligence is actually a leadership model. However, we use it for people that 
are in managerial positions as well as supervisors and also even individual contributors. But it's a model that includes four components, self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, and relationship management. So basically what that means is understanding yourself, understanding others, understanding how to manage yourself, and then managing those relationships. That's quicker than three minutes. That was great. No, it, it, well, but it, it, it also ties back into what Chuck did at the beginning of his section on financial. I mean, you're, you're reflecting on yourself, and then you're reflecting on how that has affected your current interactions with others and with your business. So I thought that was that's very interesting, um, the way they tie together. You know, yeah. It seems like the theme works really well, continues to be. And I noticed in each room you had a, at least a couple, I was in a, a, like a poster board with the, the three uh, key points that people should be keeping out, or the three key components, I guess, of having a successful business. Correct. Okay. Yep. So the emotional intelligence class covers the executive development and personnel development portions of that three-piece diagram. I see. And what, do you do much on the um, business, like the technical side of things, or do you just leave that to other organizations or other, um, I guess, conferences, training seminars, et cetera? As far as the training, as far as technical training, how do I dry, how do I restore, that, how do I clean, that kind of thing. We don't handle that here. We don't address those issues here. There are a lot of great resources to do that beyond here. We deal with the business and the management and the leadership elements of their businesses. My numbers course deals with the numbers, end, which is kind of a technical thing, driven by the, the personal thing. I see. So we deal with those issues. But well, I think the, the advantage you have is having been involved in you know, consulting, coaching, working with people for as long as you've worked with them. You've, got, you've had the opportunity to see good, bad, and indifferent and be able to take those best practices. So the advantage that you have here is it's, and correct me if I'm putting you know words in, into the program, it's very, very customized for this particular industry. What you do is customized for this particular industry. People in this particular industry are going to get the best value out of it, and um, I think that that's hugely important versus you know trying to piece it together. Sure. It's already here. People have done it here. Call this person uh, as, as a reference, and, uh, and Chuck's done. You, you yeah. had a, a business. Right, right. What was it? carpet cleaning or and mitigation? And mitigation, water damage yep. mitigation. Before we go, I want to add maybe a comment and a question combined, Chuck. Um, you help teach the Strategies for Success program. I do. Well, with John Don, who's the sponsor. John Don, we're restoration and abatement contractor <laughs> shop. <laughs> John Don, A-O-N-D-O-N.com. We love the John Don people, by the way. Yeah. said hello to Andy Robinson who was here this week. But anyway, how does that program complement yours, tie together with yours? Is it a competing program? Uh-huh. No, no, it's not at all. But that's a great question, Joe. And actually, that was one of the reasons, uh, one of the impetuses behind launching the Executive Summit is Strategies for Success is an outstanding program, five-day program, um, and it teaches fundamentals in business. Okay, how do I do things correctly in business? Steve Tobiran and Bill Yaden do an outstanding job with marketing and customer service and systems development. I handle the numbers and the hiring. This the executive summit was intended to take it, okay, those who have got this down, well, let's go to this next level. Okay. So that's one of the driving forces behind launching this. I see. And, you know, there aren't a lot of these programs for people in our industry. I'm not familiar with many. I know there are strategies for success. The, the, the Nolan Executive Summit, right? And, uh, that's good. And I don't... I don't know too many others, really. I think as the industry matures, Joe, there become more and more, I guess, the, the recognition for the need uh, is there. I think what happens is, is as certain people uh, grow their businesses, they hit certain plateaus, and they either get through them or they get stuck. <laughs> and then they start looking for help. And uh, I think it's kind of a national evolution in the maturity, uh, you know, of, of the industry. Because now I think what we do really is an industry, and I think 
when we started long ago wasn't. Yeah. It was subsets of, I agree. of other things. Yeah. You know, I see, too, what you do, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like you sort of do some of the things being part of a franchise would do for those that aren't part of a franchise. Is that, yeah. you know, because the franchise people have the, they probably have a manual for how they sell this and how they do that and how they do this and what equipment to buy and so on and so forth. But you kind of help people with all of those issues, at least by cooperating and talking together, but also how to run a business. It seems a little deeper, but I would imagine the franchises do some kind of business training as a part of their initial I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure that they do, but I think that a lot of times it's like at, at McDonald's, it's, you go to Hamburg University and you, you learn their system. And I think what happens is their system does not allow for the audible, you know, in the event that <laughs> you need to make some sort of change. I mean, they like they can't add bacon to the Big Mac or you're not allowed to do all these things because it threatens, you know, the model. And, you know, I think what's interesting is that there have you know, there have been franchisors here in the past. I know that there are franchise, you know, key executives from franchising companies here now, and I suspect that they'll continue to be here in the future because, you know, what happens is is that all these entrepreneurs are not wired the same, and I think that, you know, you can have a book or a manual and it works for some people, but it's not going to work. Yeah, I get the impression like the franchisers are trying to, uh, you kind of have to fit into their model, whereas what you're doing here is getting people to learn what their model is and, and making it work better. Yes. Uh, what their yeah. but strengths and weaknesses are. But I think that the model that we're using is not contrary to a franchise's model. We're dealing with, I'm not showing somebody how to restore a loss or how to invoice. What we're doing them is helping them grow their businesses by growing themselves and their people. Sure. You know, let's grow these people and the business is going to grow with it. Yeah, you know, the, the the difference is, is um, I think in certain situations, franchisors limit really growth. You know, oftentimes they are territorial. You know, you have this part of the city, you have this part of a county, you have this population, and there's only so much you can do in that. You know, I mentioned this contractor yesterday is doing nine million dollars. I mean, I can tell you he's an independent. Because like no one stopped them from going here or going there, and you know, you know, following worse customers, you know, would would send them. But you know, I think franchising in general is you know, you have a better chance of success if you are starting from scratch with no knowledge about a business or industry. I think they offer that greater safety. Okay. Uh, the difference is is that I think that your limit is is capped on top. You know, I think that it kind of takes the entrepreneurism, you know, kind of out of it. I think you're limited. Okay. Well, listen, we, we've, we've done an hour here. and It's been fascinating. It went Great. quick. Uh, before we go, anything you'd like to add, Chuck? I just, I'm, I'm just thrilled that you guys are here, um, and we've really enjoyed that. Thank you very much for having us. Problem. Great to be here. We, we loved it. And, and Never know if your advice back might come again. Oh, I love that. It's an open invitation. It's a drive, too. It's not, I don't have to jump on a plane. Yeah, I love yeah. that. I think before we close, uh, for listeners who are interested in learning more about the oil management, what you do and how you do it, um, how can they contact you? You can contact us by checking out veolan.com on the uh, Internet. I'll spell it. Uh, v, thank you. Uh, v like in Victor. I-O-L-A-N-D dot com. You've had that one for a while. That, that was probably, you know, I've had a lot of people who have wanted that since. You're not the only viola in the no, world no. out there. But that's great. Okay, that's easy to remember, folks. All right. Well, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thank you very much to our guest today. We still have in the studio here our mobile studio today. That's right. Uh, we, we still have Chuck B. Oland, who was our uh, host this week, a great host. Dr. Holly Bogner, thanks again for Thank joining you. us. It was wonderful That's to good. have you. Earlier we had Stephanie Beatty and Jim Ryerson, who both were with us here. Great show. Really enjoyed talking a little different, uh, little different subject this week, uh, a little business development, personnel development. Had a great time here at the conference. Hope to be back next year. I want to thank my co-host, of course, the Z-Man. That's good. Cliff's live next. And the co-pilot, because you 
drove it. And my co-pilot this week, that's right. And, of course, Roxy V. Good job, Roxy V. Thanks, Joe. I don't know what happened to Dr. Wild, but uh, we're yeah. going to have to do a little practice show and see what's going on. I think some people had trouble getting on today, but we'll check into it, folks, and we'll be ready again next week when we're back for the next episode of IAQ Radio. I would whisper love so loudly Every heart could understand But love and only love Can join the tribes of man I would give my heart's desire So that you might see The first step is to realize That it all begins with you and me Love and build a between your heart and mine. Love can build a Don't you think it's time? Don't you think it's time? has been another IAQ Radio production.